Kieran. I'm Hannah. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey everybody, welcome to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast where we talk about our experiences in Christian fundamentalism. If you've just joined us, um, we have one episode before this where we talk about ourselves and introduce our backgrounds and um, why we're doing this podcast. Um, And if you've been with us since the beginning, thank you so much for your support. We're really excited to do this. Um, Karen, you want to talk about our Patreon? Yes, thank you everyone who is part of our Patreon. And if you haven't heard about our Patreon, we have one. It's uh, Kitchen Table Cult Pod on Patreon.com. If you back it, you get the episode a day in advance. Um, there's also different levels where we will hang out and be various levels of inebriated and just talk about this in an after dark style. Um, it helps us keep going, it helps us get Hulu subscriptions so we can watch Handmaid's Tale and report back on it. And it's good. Thank you to everyone who's doing it. Please join. Yeah, it's really important to um, us that we're able to do this um, without imposing on any of our other responsibilities. But also this, I think talking about these things is really timely and important. And it's um, something that I think is really valuable because one in our community, it's really easy to forget that we're not alone and that these experiences um, have been had by a lot of people. And so bringing people together on the Patreon um, to talk about what we've all been through and try to understand um, what we came out of and why we believe what we believe now um, can be a really healing process. So um, come join us. You're not alone. So this week's topic... I want to talk about the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade and what Justice Kennedy's retirement announcement means to us who've been following this issue since, oh, I don't know, we knew what about anything. Yeah. yeah as, soon as, we, as soon as we were old enough to say the words Roe v. Wade, we knew what was up. It was pretty young. It was, it was young. Did you ever go to protests, um, pro-life marches or protests going growing up um i didn't go to protests um mostly because i lived in a place where there weren't really any abortion clinics to protest Mm -hmm. i lived with a bunch of crisis pregnancy centers so we uh donated a lot to those yeah uh and held parties for those but there wasn't any protests that i ever went to um i don't think i ever did march for life either although my parents supported the idea it was just too many people to keep track of in a parade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also getting getting from Atlanta to D.C. with X amount of kids. Yeah, no, that's not a thing. Strenuous. Yeah, we didn't go to the March for Life either, um, mostly because I grew up in California for most of that time. But um, we always had fundraisers for crisis pregnancy clinics. We always were, um, you know, subscribing to World magazine so we were always like kept up to date about everything um it was kind of dinner table conversation um material although obviously with within tactful ways of talking about it i mean our parents were not there were no real details (laughs) there were no real details it was just like yeah we want to stop america from killing babies and we'd be like yeah killing babies sounds bad i found an entire blog post that i wrote this morning where i was talking about the runaway supreme court and how we have we have murdered an entire generation of people through abortion and i was just like i mean that was a take I mean, we I were had. taught we were it's taught to bad. think that it was yeah, it was a generational genocide. Yeah, that was what we like were taught. That was the rhetoric. It was all very much like these are like human beings from the time that the sperm hits the egg, fully fledged in their own right. So anything that goes wrong, and to sidebar this in a completely different direction, mm. my mom had two stillborns, and that really messed with me. Because what happens when they're born dead? Right. Like, they're, like they're, they're alive from conception, right? They're full human beings from conception, and then they're born 
not alive, but they never existed. Like, they never had identities. They never had anything. They were only ever inside of my mom's body. And as soon as they were out, they weren't there anymore. Did you guys have a funeral for them? Yes. And my parents used that to, like, as, like, a salvation evangelical thing. It was kind of gross. How did they do that? Well, my dad just, like, was the um, eulogist. So my dad had the podium and just gave a speech that was coming to Jesus. Was it a full-on altar call? Oh, yeah. Did anybody come up? Um, no, because, like, most people were already Christians. But my parents were also the kind that was like, and you don't have to come up if you're shy. You can just say this prayer in your seat and, like, did uh, okay. the leading into the prayer thing. So your parents were um, against any form of birth control. Yes. They believed that birth control was almost an unforgivable sin. My parents actually fostered two kids between, uh, like, one of my sisters and the other sister. Mm -hmm. uh, because they felt guilty about being on birth control for the four years between my brother and my next closest in age sister. Wow. Yeah. I learned um, this week that, I mean, I guess I, I never thought about it, but I learned this week that my parents um, believed that condoms were wrong. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, because it, it was a kind of birth control. So they like when they did the family planning stuff they were you know my mom was charting her temperature she was using the catholic um catholic workbook to like go through and check you know mm -hmm. mucus quality and temperature and stuff and using that instead of anything else because even condoms were interfering with god's will yep yep that was what my mom told me too she didn't chart though she was really lazy about it how did that make you feel growing up about yourself being born female, assigned female at birth. I didn't care until I got my period and then everything was bad. Yeah. Everything was terrible after I got my period because like I knew what that meant at that point. Mm -hmm. And I, that wasn't anything that I wanted. I'd seen my mom's pregnancies go from like bad to worse and I was just 12 and they were going to get so much worse and I had no idea. Mm. And like that was just something that I didn't, I didn't want for myself because I saw how bad it was and I saw what being a mom meant because I was a mom at that point <laughs> for her, my yeah, younger siblings. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't, none of this is, is a thing that I want to do with my life. Um, and so then when I got my period, first it was in the most humiliating way possible because we were like, we had another family living with us at the time and I was outside doing school and I was wearing like light pink pants and I was sitting on a tree Oof. and the like older girl who was living with us like just pointed it out openly loudly for my brother and my siblings and her c cousin and everybody to hear and i was just mortified and also thought i was dying because yeah. i didn't know what a period was oh, like i didn't man. know that that's what was happening so you hadn't and been so warned. i was just like nobody warned i wasn't you. warned my mom gave me these books and told me to read them but like because of purity culture, I skipped over everything that had to do with reproducing. <laughs> so I didn't know. I you self-censored. No you self-censored yourself into ignorance. I did. And my mom was like, this is fine. But like, we were also told not to think about sex. And that's what, like, as far as I knew it was. Did no you one ever know what sex it. was? I mean, vaguely. Okay. Like, like, I knew that like, sex was this mythical thing that happened in mom and dad's room. And then my mom was pregnant suddenly. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was my idea of it for a really long time. I I must have learned about it pretty early on. I don't remember a time when I didn't have a sense of what it was, but I do remember the um, Monica Lewinsky scandal was a, a turning mo mo point in my awareness of it because I remember being like, "What did Hillary, what did not Hillary? What did Bill do wrong?" <laughs> Why is Hillary staying with him? What happened? What's going on? Why isn't she getting a divorce? Or I don't know. I, I mm -hmm. don't even remember what questions I was asking, but I remember getting a little bit of a short version at that point. I remember getting, I got my period like the day before 9-11. Oh, shit. Yeah. There's no forgetting. <laughs> there's no forgetting what happened. No. Um, and I remember, few, I, I was 
at that point, I wanted to be a midwife. At that point, I had read all of my mom's nursing textbooks, and I was really um, enchanted with the idea of pregnancy because it's kind of incredible what your body can do. Um, and so I remember just thinking, like, finally I'm good for something, which is, like, so, so messed up. That was how my mom approached it to me. She was like, yes, now you can have babies. And it was like I'd fulfilled my purpose in life and I was mm-hmm. just horrified. Yeah. And then I, I, and then I remember thinking, but I don't think I actually want to be a mom because, like, I'm already doing all that work. <laughs> but, like, it's really cool what my body can do. But I also, yeah, I don't know. I felt, I felt weird and guilty like I was going to be abandoning my life's purpose if I didn't have kids. Yeah, I was definitely taught that I was. That's definitely a, like, point of angst with my parents, Mm -hmm. especially after I got married and didn't start instantly reproducing. Like, that was a thing. So, yeah, how did they handle that? Very (laughs) passive-aggressively. They sent me me one year for my birthday a 300-page tome that was just printouts from Mm Ancestry.com with me in there and my spouse and, like, nothing... nothing else there after that part I mean obviously that was true but it was just sort of like the way my mom works is like there was like obviously supposed to be something there I remember um one of my one of the family stories that we'd always like throw around was that um my dad's best friend for my parents wedding got them a pack of diapers as their wedding present. I would have murdered that person. <laughs> and my, my, I remember like someone, I don't remember which of my parents, like they made a joke of like, haha, we're going to do this. And I was just like, no, I'm already going to be on birth control and not doing that. And I need a break because I've already just raised like five kids. So give me, give yep. me a minute. Yep. I was just telling people, I'm like, yeah, no, give me like a decade and planning to myself to have my hysterectomy within a decade, which is actually happening now. Yeah. So let's so catch I'm everybody excited. up. Kieran's yes. having a hysterectomy. I am so excited. I've been, what's cool is like, Exactly a decade ago this month, my mom took the pregnancy test that was like, oh, yeah, we're having another baby. And that was the last, that was my last sibling. That was the one that, like, was the catalyst for everything. I remember you calling me right after after that happened. And I don't think you were capable of crying at that point because you were so shut down. But if you had been, you yeah. would have been crying when you called me because you were so upset. Yep. I was, I was devastated. I was, I had no no idea how to cope i was just because it it spelled death for me in a lot of ways it was just like i ceased being a human being for another nine months yeah and it was terrible and so like it was then like that day i'd like looked up how to be sterilized and how to get on birth control and how to like not have kids yeah you have been talking i got married You've been, it's you've, been so long. You've been talking about getting hysterectomy for pretty much as long as I can remember. Yeah. Yeah. So. And now it's just like, finally. So if we, uh, if we, if we don't have an- another episode out for two weeks, this is why. Um, <laughs> Karen's recovering. But maybe, maybe you'll be like so high on drugs that we'll, we'll get, um, we'll have fun. Yeah, I'm like, it might be entertaining. Wait, actually, we might, because... we might have a fun, uh, yeah. like Patreon only podcast. Yes. <laughs> this is the Kieran on Narcotics podcast. Yeah. Talking about what it's like after having hysterectomy. <laughs> so I had, um, a funny experience because my wedding anniversary was the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And I didn't realize that when I got married. Um, <laughs> so our first wedding anniversary, I was like, we're going to do things. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And like my ex was like, but I want to go to the March for Life. And I just was like, I am not um, going to that. And I know no. he like, there, so while I was working um, pretty near the um, only abortion clinic that was functioning in the state of Maryland in Germantown. So I was working about five minutes away from that. And so he was um, waiting tables. And so he'd go, we, and we were sharing a car. So he'd drop me off at um, work some days when he didn't have a shift. And he'd go and participate in the protest in front of the clinic. Oh, my God. And then we'd have lunch afterward. And... 
I just remember being like, yeah, you can do this. This is your thing. But like, I strongly, strongly disagree with this. Like, I think that, um, obviously I haven't figured out what I believe yet, but I was just very uncomfortable with it. And so when he was like, yeah, I want to go to the March for Life on our anniversary instead of going away for the weekend, maybe we can postpone our anniversary celebration. I was just livid. And we didn't. And he was like mad about it. And then the next year, well, he asked for a divorce like right before our second anniversary. So um, he did go to the March for Life that day. And I remember like seeing photos and just being like, I cannot believe this. (laughs) This is not real. This is not real life. Because it's like, I don't know. It felt like men who thought that they knew what was best for women were getting all up in their emotions about something they didn't understand and mm-hmm. were trying to um, trying to basically speak for women without women. And so yep. I, that's why I had a problem with him going because I was like, you don't get the issues at stake here because it's never going to directly affect you. Nope. You will never be able to understand what that is like so did you did you growing up did you know anyone who had gotten an abortion or were you conscious of that i hadn't known anyone who had an abortion growing up um or at least no one who admitted it like i'm sure i knew people who had but no one who admitted it no one who talked about it i there were several people who i grew up knowing that they had or in our church who had and they talked about it as like this like super dark shameful thing that they were never going to be able to stop grieving yeah like we had some people like come speak at our church a couple times during pro-life month or whatever Mm -hmm. that were like i had an abortion and i regret it and i feel really bad and now i'm trying to have infinite numbers of children (laughs) so (laughs) the politics of quiverful life are really interesting because like these choices are not just like personal like my existence is because I have a uterus and therefore I'm useful to this cause. And also because God is calling us to this, but also there's this like sense of like, because America was formerly a Christian nation, sidebar, it wasn't, they just think it is, um, like that this was one of the signs of like the end times and like the signs of like our, you know, our society's downfall. And there was some verse in Revelation that you could extrapolate easily to be like all of these things women's in control of their bodies these things that we think are wrong are right oh my god right and so the politics of it we this is what the moral majority was kind of founded around this is what they discovered that evangelicals would um like come and vote for like this is what would get out the evangelical vote was um Roe v. Wade. And it was, it's interesting because the more I study evangelical history, the more I realize that like, um, the Catholics have always been pretty consistently opposed to abortion. Um, but they weren't political about it so much. Um, and up until Roe v. Wade and then the, um, the evangelicals just were kind of ambivalent. Um, obviously there were some that definitely, had problems with it, but most of them, it was not an issue until it was turned into a, a, um, graphic imagination piece that was then turned to as, um, and used to get people to get out and vote. They're murdering an entire generation. Um, we've all seen the like Westboro Baptist signs, you know, the super graphic, um, you know, abortion, aftermath pictures and those were like really really common I remember seeing them in like world magazine like that was like part of our like regular media diet yeah yeah, they did not they did not shy away from graphic descriptions of abortion and and fear-mongering and making it seem like this is the most horrible thing imaginable is to not want to be pregnant do not want to have a child right and it was really interesting because I didn't realize um how a birth control actually worked until I was already married and starting to do research on, you know, all this actually right before I got married, I guess, was when I started doing this research. And I realized, not realized, but I, I learned that, 
um, the uterus sloughs off fertilized zygotes at a higher rate without the interference of birth control than it does when you're on hormonal birth control. So like hormonal birth control regulates your cycle so much that you like lose fewer fertilized zygotes than if you were not on anything. Which just blows everything out of the water. Right. And that was the that was the moment for me where I was like, well, so being on the pill is literally more pro-life. If you believe that life yep. begins at conception, yep. everybody would be on the pill. Yep. But they don't know how the pill works. Like it's, and it, that's the piece that's baffling to me is there's so much misinformation about this. And it was so, it was so fun when I was in, um, in Kyrgyzstan with the Peace Corps, I was able to do some, um, some sex ed conversations with some of these girls um, from my school and from other schools in the area. And the, the stuff that they were taught, they knew maybe more than I did growing up. Um, and so we had these really great conversations, but it was just kind of baffling to me. Like in Kyrgyzstan, they, they like believe that wind is going to give you a cold, but they know more about birth control than I did growing up. That's and the, the lack of information that, you know, the, the dep- like depriving women of information about their bodies mm-hmm. within evangelical culture is just stunning to me. It's intentional because if women had access to that, it, like if I had access to information about birth control and all that, I would have known that my periods were terrible and not normal well before I was like well into adulthood. Right. I would have known so much more about my body and so much more about like what, is and isn't right with it beyond just that oh by the way i'm not murdering babies right i do that with my period like <laughs> and female pain is just not taken very seriously in no, it's really in normal. evangelical culture anyway so it just extending that to your body is a is a very normal natural part of that um yeah we won't take your suffering seriously at any point well and my parents even like glorified suffering so it was like the more you were in pain like the better you were well right because like that's that's how you um become a more godly person is right is through suffering through suffering so um the other thing i learned when i was doing those um like sex ed conversations um was about how um access to birth control and what it does like in a society like economies do better because women are able to go to college and women are able to like choose who they marry without having any form of coercion. Like if you get pregnant by a rapist, you don't ever think about marrying them or being owing them anything because you're able to, you're able to dissolve any sort of obligation or connection to them if you're on birth control. Or if you're able to access an abortion. And so that blew my mind. It was like, yeah, this is like overall, like women die less. Women stay in abusive relationships less and um, are able to like contribute to the overall welfare of society if they're able to access Which is all of the things that we're taught not to do. And it's so funny to me because the church, like, is supposed to be doing these things where the church is like, yeah, we care about, like, the welfare of humans and we're, like, pro-life means, like, we're invested in society and, like, making things better and, like, helping women have better options. But, like, I, the single moms in my church were doing it alone. They weren't, they weren't really. They weren't getting help. No, they weren't getting help. They were getting slut-shamed instead. Right. And told they should reconcile with their abusive exes who beat them and did whatever. Right. My parents were those people. They they felt like they needed to reach out to single mothers and like take care of them and convince them to go reconcile with their abusive exes so that way they could be whole again. Like there was something broken with them. Right. Because having an abusive father is better than having no father. Which is just mind-blowing to me. Like, no, no. I would rather have, like, children have healthy attachment styles and not have uh, trauma at key developmental stages in their growth than, yeah, like, just have the illusion of having a family that's intact. Yep. Um, So when, when when did you get involved with the politics of pro-life, the pro-life movement? 
it's sort of just like always been in the background. I also wasn't, I wasn't involved in a lot of pro-life organizations specifically. I was more broadly focused. It was just sort of a part of my politics or mm-hmm. the focus of my politics. So it was just sort of like, I don't know, it was approached as more part of the platform where it's like, obviously abortion is bad because you're murdering like my peers or whatever. I was, I mean, we were all very aware of the Supreme Court, like who on the Supreme Court would uphold Roe v. Wade. I remember following that. And I remember like that was why like people like the, the Harrises were getting, going to law school or like getting involved in, you know, clerking for judges like that's why the judicial system was of any interest was not because of like reforming the judicial system or like helping make it more fair or like any sort of like actual christian only we want to roll back roe v wade it was strictly roe v wade and it was there was basically no other reason to care about it and i remember like the the trap laws thing being a very interesting piece of this because this was our our (laughs) was our backdoor plan for like if we can't overturn Roe v. Wade we're going to functionally disable it which has pretty much been successful so um what is what does trap stand for They're again just on all the fronts right now trap is stands for targeted regulation of abortion providers okay so how do trap laws work trap laws are like the laws that um Wendy Davis was filibustering against that would require um, abortion clinics uh, be up to certain codes um, so that they would be um, like OR quality clinics um, when you don't actually need an OR, an OR room to perform an abortion safely. So it would be making things like cost prohibitive um, slowing things down. It's just making things hard. Be, yeah, requiring women to see, um, or uterus having people, to see a video of an ultrasound of their pregnancy, requiring them to wait 24 hours, requiring um, parental sign-offs, notification of parents, which is like, well, if this is an incest baby, you're never getting that signed off. Um, it... Yeah, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Um, requiring, um, I don't know, all these, all of these things that are just prohibitive. Making it impossible. Yeah, making it like economically difficult, logistically difficult, um, and just trying to discourage people from having access to it, even if it's technically legal. The making you watch a video of an ultrasound is a tactic that they have at crisis pregnancy centers that they do all the time and also making you wait and also just like giving you bad information. Yep. The transvaginal ultrasound requirement that like is incredibly invasive and like, okay, so um, (laughs) I have... um, had those many of those because where I was living with the Peace Corps, that was their preferred method of doing a um, gynecological checkup, and they're not comfortable. And also, if you've just been raped, none of that. That's going to be incredibly triggering and traumatizing. And I have been in that position where I've been having a transvaginal ultrasound after having been raped, and I don't want that. I don't want to make anybody go through that. That's not fun. That's emotionally intense and exhausting and demanding. And to make that a law, that was one of the things that was um, up for vote in Virginia a couple couple years back, was like requiring women who were seeking abortions to have a transvaginal ultrasound beforehand and watch the the video of whatever was in their uterus before having, yeah. They were just like, let's give you PTSD for this thing that you're already going through. Yeah. No, it's 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 traumatic, it's invasive, it's unnecessary. There's no reason for it. So, um that was like, yeah, that was plan B. If we didn't get the Supreme Court, we were going to take these things um through the state legislatures and make it impossible and onerous Lo and, and behold. difficult. And they've pretty much done that. Like, yeah. There's very little that hasn't. That's pretty awful. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's the 
conservative right strategies like the grassroots organizing at the state level and just like working your way up. And I think that's what's been overlooked in a lot of these cases. It's like yeah. they're really, Everyone really good looking, at that. Everyone is looking to the federal government. They don't realize that it's happening in states. Yeah, like it all starts at the grassroots level. It all starts at the state level and then it works up to the federal level and nobody is watching Pence. And this is also like his thing. Yeah. And this is this is what's concerning about this is you have a whole bunch of stay at home moms who are all emotionally invested in this like this fantasy of what an abortion is based off of all these graphic images and graphic horror stories that they've been told. And so they don't they have got free time. They're going to go knocking door to door. And uh, the Dems are just not getting... Or calling their senators. Or calling their or senators. And they're not getting the... So representatives are not getting pushback on the same level from the left um, speaking up for these things because they don't think it's a concern. And so you have you know massive numbers of church ladies who have free time who are going to be politically active on this. Um it's effective. Yep. And when all the legislators hear is angry voices demanding they don't do a thing, like they think that's what all their that's constituents what they're gonna go with. Yeah. They think yeah. that they think that's what all their constituents believe because that's all they're hearing. And so they're gonna feel hemmed in and required to agree with them. Even though the vast majority of people and even though they know the vast majority of people disagree. Yeah. And think that this is wrong yeah when you get gonna go with who's loud yeah the polling data will show otherwise but if like 80 percent of their constituent calls are saying like we need to make abortions more difficult to to access then they're gonna be having to vote for that it's really stressful it's really stressful this is why i'm happy i'm not having a uterus anymore all of the stress will vanish. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I am very thankful to Obamacare for my IUD, and um, we're going to keep it that way. Yes. Okay, so we have a um, caller question, and I'm going to um, dial her in. Um, so this is what we're going to do, guys. If you have a question and you email us and, um, and you're available and it's an important question, we will call you and um, get you on air to talk about it with us. All right, so we are calling Jennifer. Hi, Rachel. Oh, no. No. We'll call her back. <laughs> okay, well, if she calls me back, um, we'll get this on air. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about today? I feel like I had thoughts, and now they're just gone. Okay. Well, we can take a little break. Oh, I was thinking about, uh, like, the justices on the court right now. Because now that Kennedy is leaving, like, there's an opening, but it's mostly right now a bunch of people who've already, like, who are already on the record of saying they, like, would support an overturn of Roe v. Wade. And some people are like, that's not likely, but I have doubts. I have doubts. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because the court as it exists has, um... It has moved, like, the Overton window has, like, moved to the right further. And so, mm -hmm. like, the court used to be fairly centrist, and now it's gotten more and more conservative. And so anyone that they appoint who's going to be, quote-unquote, centrist is going to be, like, much more conservative than we would have had 15, 20 years ago. And... Um, I mean, even when, like, Obama was president, it's going to be more conservative than that. Yeah. Um, everybody. Merrick Garland was super conservative compared to um, the history of justices that we'd had. Um, yeah. And yet he looks super liberal compared to everybody who's on there. Yeah. I remember when Roberts was being nominated and confirmed mm -hmm. and everyone was like, like, the only question I remember anyone talking about was where he stood on Roe v. Wade. And he was like, yeah, if Roe v. Wade, like, came up, I would probably overturn it. And yeah. everyone was like, cool. And then he was confirmed. Ugh. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, like, I think that we will probably see Roe v. Wade overturned in our lifetime. It's already been gutted. But yep. it will be it overturned. It really has. And, and, it, and what it's going to do, and this is the thing that, like, I have real beef with pro-life logic on this because 
what overturning Roe v. Wade and like restricting access to abortions will do is it will end legal abortions. Yeah. It's not going it. to stop abortions. It's not going to stop. And so we're going to have women um, or people with uteruses dying because they're going to be trying to get back alley abortions. They're going to try to do it themselves and um, they're going to bleed out and we're going to have horror yeah. stories. Yeah. Like before, before I realized that abortion was an option for me, my backup plan was DIYing it with like black cohosh and just hoping for the best. With what? Like, black cohosh. Oh, it's what yeah. I use to like restart my periods. And if you take enough of it, it will also do the thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Go find your local witch. Yeah. Get yeah, but like that was my plan because I, at the time, I wasn't comfortable with like my in laws finding out that I would have had an abortion if I had one. So I was going to fake a miscarriage. Mm. That was my backup. Right, because that's the only way to get sympathy is if it, if, yep. if God decided that you, the baby was going to die rather than you. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Because that's, that's the equation is who, who matters more. Mm -hmm. and, every, and the pro-life movement is always the unborn fetus, which never is, the person carrying it. I, and it's so ironic to me that these are the people that um, have no interest in children's rights. These are the same people that will lobby for um, no protections for children for homeschooling. They will not care if they won't parents they are take their kids to the doctor. They won't care if parents are abusing their children they'll just side with the parents because they think it's a religious liberty issue and and yet they claim to be caring about children it just it, it's mind-boggling it's only it's only when they're inside and they're not a nuisance as soon as they're outside and you have to take care of them well you're on your own because well you're eating resources and not giving back and you should just <laughs> pull yourself up by your bootstraps before you can even walk yeah because you're obviously a welfare queen which is like totally really right. a thing it's not. It's not a thing. No. It is hard. I can't even get, like, SNAP benefits right now. Mm -hmm. And I make $500 a month. It's ridiculous. It's not. No one is gaming the system. It is impossible. Yeah. And rant. Yep. So why can't you get <laughs> SNAP benefits right now? What's the... Because um, our rent is 2000 a month. And for two people, you have to make like 1500 a month combined uh -huh. and even though we don't share bills and i don't pay rent like i can't sign the piece of paper that says i won't share food with my roommate uh-huh and i can't do the like sorting of keeping my stuff separate and like ensuring that like that's not a thing because they make you prove shit they make you prove that you're poor they make you like show that like you're not also helping other people it's yeah. ridiculous yeah that is ridiculous okay um jennifer's about to call us right back she says yay hi can you hear me hello hello okay, hey hi. how are you i'm good i have kieran here hey can you hear me can you hear them sorry i missed your call that's okay so um, we we're good. We thought your question was uh, really interesting. You want to ask it again? Yeah, sure. Um, so my question is: I consider myself a progressive Christian, and so I want to know what's the best way to engage with people who. I'll identify as Christian, but seem to, and this is my opinion, obviously, mm -hmm. but um, have a warped understanding of Jesus. Like, how can I engage with them? I live in Texas. You know, I have an opportunity to engage with these folks sometimes. And, you know, they'll hear me say I go to church and I go I teach Sunday school and all this other stuff. Um, but... You know, the things that my pastor preaches are are pretty different. And right. so than probably what they're hearing in their churches. And so I don't know the best way. I feel like I'm the, the I'm like uh, the best 
people like me are like, we could be like spies or, <laughs> I don't know if it's the best way, we can help because I'm like not threatening, right? right? Maybe I'm not threatening, I guess. Because you believe all the like, same how things. Can I, how can I get people, win people over? <laughs> how can I use that like power for good, I guess, is what I'm curious to know. Kieran, what do you think? Um, that's a really good question. I, my thought... I think it's possible. I think it is possible. And I think that a lot of it comes down to, um, compassion is an act of the imagination. And so when people, I mean, you see this all the time with, um, people who are homophobic and then they meet a queer person and then they're like, oh, I get it. Like, you're not scary. Like, you're normal. This is not threatening. And they t- change their minds. I think it's the right. same kind of approach. Yeah, that's what I generally recommend to people is, like, be yourself, but be kind. So if, if you see, like, a person and they're, you know, have a bunch of kids or whatever and they're having a hard time in line, like, just smile. Just say hi. Just be kind. Like, you don't have to confront them. You don't even have to, like try to preach at them your existence and your kindness speaks more than anything else yeah just how i I present myself in life being consistently compassionate so when they see like you're compassionate toward them and you're compassionate toward this other person and you're you know introducing them to stories and humans that they wouldn't be exposed to other in other ways Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. organically in their own community um it really, I mean, it changes everything. I mean, like, it's it's like you you meet someone and their personal story tells you so much more than anything you would ever learn in a book. And that just will, that will open things up. And I think that's the thing is, like, a lot of these people believe that they're compassionate. And they often are very well-intentioned and really want to be kind. They think they're speaking the truth in love. It's just that their version of love is wrong. They just haven't they just haven't been on the receiving end of their kind of love yet, so they don't know how it comes across. No, that's a really really good point. I've, yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's just like Karen said like not preaching at them, which isn't my style anyway. I mean, that's not my vibe. Like I'm not, you know, you know. Um, but yeah, just how I present myself or how I would engage um, just on a human level. And I think if you do um, get into an ideological conversation about it, Jesus was always about the people before his the ideology. Right. Consistently. Yeah. And so yeah. that can be your your access point is like, yeah, but the right. people, like the human pain comes first. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, that's sort of like the way, you know, that I think about my faith. It's not so much about, you know, like doing, you know, doing things here on earth for some, you know, eternal reward, which, you know, logically I don't think probably exists. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the, in, the, in the way that you would think of like a traditional heaven or whatever, who knows what really happens when we die. But like, for me, it's like about life on earth here right now, you know, right. and what we can do to serve our fellow you know, human beings, and so, you know, I'm not really interested in those kinds of ideological debates, you know, I guess, they're not interesting to me, or, well, maybe they're interesting, but they're not, they're not practical, for me. they're not at the crux of, like, why I would consider myself, like, a follower of Jesus, if that makes sense, yeah, you that know, makes perfect more, sense, like, I, he, you know, it's just more of, like, he is, like, a role model of how I want to live my life, yeah, you know? and so, I don't know, I, but yeah, it's just it's just interesting because here in the South and in Texas, even in a big, very diverse city like Houston, it's just not that uncommon to be asked, like, where do you go to church or do you go to church? And, like, a lot of people go to church, like, comparatively, you know, and most of my, a lot of my progressive friends go to church, you mm-hmm. know, go to progressive Christian churches or progressive synagogues or you know, like, faith life is still, like, a bit, it's not considered odd or weird to go to church here. Like, it might be in parts of the Northeast or other parts of the country that are, that are you know, more liberal. So, you know, I guess just, 
especially in this election cycle, it's just been frustrating to me as a, a religious progressive to feel like our voices are not always heard. But then I think to myself, well, okay, they're not always being heard, but like, you know, how, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say. How, yeah. how, do, we, how do we win people over? Like, how do we let people know? Like, you can be, you can be a compassionate and it's, it's, it's a good thing and it exists and there are, there are, we exist in the world, you know? I don't know. It's just been, yeah. it's just been a, Something that was like huge to me when I was a kid was when adults who, you know, louder. Hang on, I I can't hear your voice as well. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, so something that was huge to me when I was a kid. Um, yeah. When adults would notice something or or seem like they noticed that like my family life was strange or whatever is they would just listen to me. The ones who just listened to me and who asked me questions and were interested in my experience in my life meant so much. And I think that can even be extended over to like the mothers um, in these families is like just take an interest in them. And when you're talking to them in a group or whatever, prioritize their voices and ask them questions. Right. And just listen. And that goes so far because then, because... They're told they don't have value, children and their mothers. Like we're told that we don't have value. Right. Okay. Right. So just listening disproves that. Yeah. No, that's important. That's important to know. I mean, yeah. And just I, engaging, I, not roll your eyes or make fun of, especially young people that are that you know that maybe through no you know decision making of their own were raised in such a way to feel that this is what they believe is true and right. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously those folks, I mean, yeah, you know, you don't want to make fun of them or alienate them or isolate them, you know? Mm-hmm. I think too, um, I, on a sort of different note, but interfaith dialogue, I think can go a long way, um, yeah. towards these things. And again, it's just like exposure. Um, but like if you're... I don't know, talking to these people, inviting them to things that involve diverse communities. Um, so that no, they, yeah, so that there's, it's harder to dehumanize the other. Maybe that's something to talk to people at my church about, you yeah. know, inviting people, you know, to have a conversation. I mean, we do things with the synagogue that's next door to us, mm-hmm. which is great, but it's a very progressive left synagogue. So, you know, even though we're of different faiths, we're probably politically, ideologically aligned, you know? Um, so it would be interesting to have that kind of dialogue with, you know, another Christian church that is probably maybe a politically in a different, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to see if we could have, like, a productive, peaceful dialogue on that? Yeah. On something. I, was, I was heartened. I was cheered a little with that word for such a horrific thing. I did yeah. feel like with the crisis at the border with the children and their parents, I I was happy to see more conservative Christian leaders speaking out against that. And I thought, okay, like, you know, we can find some, you know, hopefully there's, you know, there's some common ground we can find on certain issues and maybe that's the place to start. Right, because you don't see pro-life leaders like taking a stand for children who are like actively alive and breathing um, very yeah. often. And so that was really refreshing. Right. It was. And I, I mean, I hate to say I was surprised, but I was. But I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe we can do something with that, you know. But, yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I think it's just been something, you know, it's, it's, it's just something that's on my mind. And whenever I call Ted Cruz's office or John Cornyn's office, mm-hmm. you know, to complain, like, if the situation allows for it, I always take a moment, like when I, you know, well, ah, you know, I'm a public school teacher and I'm a mom and, you know, trying to like sort of humanize myself with the listener on the phone because, you know, someone who's going to work for Cruz or Cornyn is probably, you know, going to be different <laughs> for me. Yeah. So I'm trying to humanize myself to them in ways that I hope that they can relate to. You know, I'll get a kind person on the other line, you know, who works for Cruz or whatever and and, and they, we engage in a way, you know, I'm always polite. I think that's um, something that um, liberals don't do well, and I think this is one of the reasons that there's this divide. And I know there's there's a, a 
a lot of controversy on, yeah, but we shouldn't listen to fascists. But mm-hmm. making sure that you remember that everybody on all sides of this conversation is still a human is so yeah. important. And I think that goes back to what Kieran said, is just be kind. Just yeah. always be kind. Well, and it's, it, yeah, and it's a lot, um, you know, it's a lot easier to be mean. I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but when so much of the dialogue is happening, you know, not face-to-face, not over the phone, it's so, you know, easy to get nasty and easy to get dismissive and rude. Yeah. You know. I found that I found myself arguing on a Facebook page with some friend of a friend of a friend or whatever, and I got really heated and really, really nasty. And um, then I ended up, I was like, okay, that's not, so I ended up like private messaging him mm-hmm. and apologizing, you know, and saying like, I wasn't, that why I was, I got personal, that wasn't right. And he responded in kind, and it was, you know, I don't, we certainly didn't agree on anything really, but, you know, I'm trying to think about those ways of engaging dialogue is possible way more more useful (laughs) yeah dialogue is possible if we slow down but we gotta we gotta all be willing to slow down a little bit that's true well thank you i'm so excited for this show i can't wait to hear the full episode and episodes to come and i'm excited about it thank you but thank you and thank you karen yeah thanks for calling thanks for submitting questions all right bye Bye. Bye. Well, anything else for our listeners? There's not really a good happy note to land on with, like, abortion stuff. It's just, it is what it is. So yeah. you're welcome. You get to hold this like we do. Yeah, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's hard. And it's, it's hard and uh, there's no real an- easy answer. I think, you know, like we were talking about with Jennifer, it's just that that compassion and remembering that we're we're all coming from the same place at the beginning of this dialogue where we want the best for women and children in this country and uh, understanding how to achieve that is where we start falling apart. And so having compassion and remembering our motives together is really There good. is common ground. You just have to keep track of it. Yeah. 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 Not get nasty. Keep it human. Humane. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, tune in either next, next week, week or, or the, the week, week after. after. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats again, Karen. Thank you. I'm excited to not have this anymore. Yeah. Excited. And if uh, if we do a kitchen table cult after dark episode, um, if you're a Patreon um, supporter, you get um, access to that. You can join for it live, and uh, it'll be a good party. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. See you next week. Bye.